This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Thank you all for coming out for what will be our second substantive session of the Immigration Rights and Wrongs course brought to you by the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity uh, with the helpful sponsorship of the President, the Provost Office, Continuing Studies Institute for Research in the Social Sciences and uh, many others. It's our pleasure to keep uh, many of you on campus here thinking about, talking about, exploring in greater depth the meaning of immigration, both for us here in California, around the nation, and indeed around the world. Our session today is entitled Imagining Immigration, Metaphors, Images, and Narratives. In just a moment, I'm going to turn over this session to David Palumbo Lou, who will both moderate and uh, introduce our main speakers for the session. But um, it is noteworthy to me that one cannot go through a week these days without probably multiple reminders of how immigration is touching the fabric of all of our lives. Last week, the Census Bureau marked the uh, birth, if you will, arrival, depending on how you want to cast it, of the 300 millionth American, a number no doubt in part heavily influenced by immigration and charted the transformation of a population that grows ever more diverse. Uh, secondly, uh, we've all now borne witness to an unfortunate and arguably despicable effort at voter intimidation that's taken place in Southern California with letters sent to many Hispanic surname voters trying to discourage them from showing up um, to vote. And just this morning on National Public Radio, there was a major series on how immigration is transforming the state of North Carolina, a place not usually associated with the immigration transformation and how many folks there were making a trip, in fact, to Mexico to learn about the new arrivals in their uh, communities and workplaces and taking home some pretty powerful lessons. So I commend that to you. I'm sure you can all find it online uh, at the NPR um, website. With that backdrop of continuing social change, continuing controversy, and all too much misunderstanding behind us, we're going to try to take a slightly different lens to approaching these issues tonight. Remember last time we began setting a historical backdrop against which to understand America's history of treatment of immigrants, some pointed economic questions about whether it's good or bad for our own economy, takes jobs away and so on, and then a, a, a very poignant analysis of why it's become a political issue in this moment. Today we're going to think more about how we all perceive this issue, how we think about it, how we talk about it, what sort of images and ways of viewing the issue are called to mind. And to do that, we're going to draw on literary perspectives, linguistic anthropological perspectives, and psychological perspectives uh, on the sort of metaphors, images, and narratives that attach to the immigration issue. So without further ado, let me uh, introduce our moderator for this evening, who is Professor uh, David Palumbo Lou here at Stanford. And comparative literature. David's fields of interest include social and cultural criticism, literary theory and criticism, East Asian and Asian Pacific American studies. His publications include the following books, The Poetics of Appropriation, Literary Theory and Practice of uh, Wang Tingjiang, The Ethnic Canon, I'm sure I butchered those phrases, um, The Ethnic Canon, Histories, Institutions, Interventions, uh, Streams of Cultural Capital, and Asian American, Historical Crossings of a Racial Frontier, 
From 1999 to 2005, he served as the director here of the program in Modern Thought and Literature. He recently served as director of our program in Asian American Studies within CCSRE and is currently our director of the overall undergraduate program. Please welcome David Palumbo-Lu. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Larry, for that uh, wonderful introduction, and I'd like to welcome you all here to tonight's session. I'm proud and delighted to be here. It's a great occasion, and like the course on Confronting Katrina that we presented last year, a fine illustration of what we are interested in and do at CSRE. If you found this course useful, both in its topic matter and the issues that it raises more broadly, I urge you to contact me. I'm only too happy to tell you more about the work we do and the courses that we offer. Now, last year we started a tradition wherein moderators get to give a very brief presentation in order to set the stage, and I'll do that, and then I'll introduce our speakers. Only a minuscule number of Americans have any direct knowledge or experience of the problems of immigration that have captured today's headlines. And yet public opinion has been strong, emphatic, and even passionate. How has this happened? Tonight's panel addresses the ways issues of immigration have been presented to the public, and the ways that public discourse has tended to inherit a certain vocabulary of images, words, and phrases to capture that reality. I believe the images, stereotypes, ways of naming and identifying are familiar to us all. Tonight, we're especially concerned not only with what these images are, but how and why they were produced and disseminated in the manners they are. Now, what do I mean by that? I certainly don't mean technologically or in terms of some amorphous thing called the media. What I mean precisely is how they get produced historically, and by that I don't mean from a long time ago. What I mean is how these images and names and identities and ways of thinking about the subject are the product of historical processes. How did it come to be that these are the ways that we have come to grasp, understand, debate the issue of immigration? For certainly there could be other ways of talking about it. Now for my short presentation, I want to make a couple of points and then play you a song that I think illustrates my points well. Well, I won't play it myself. I didn't mean to frighten you. Um, I'm just going to play you a clip of a, of a professional doing it. Okay. Here are my two main points. One, I want to assert that if we do not recover, trace back, and analyze the historical processes that have produced our way of looking at things like immigration, we cannot understand how the forces that produce the figure of the illegal immigrant are forces that have shaped us and who and what we are as well. That is to say, by remaining at the level of simply identifying images, metaphors, and narratives about immigrants alone, we cannot understand how our own lives are integrated into historical, political, economic phenomena, and how the term itself is a product of a process of historical forces that links up groups together. The moral and ethical and political responsibilities of legality and illegality are thus to be recognized in a more, broadly in, uh, more broadly and fully and this song will tell us about that. Second, if we remain aloof or apart from a recognition of how we are not only implicated in the histories of these people, but incorporated in them, it becomes all too easy and indeed likely that we can ethically, morally, and politically separate ourselves off from our shared historical experiences. 
Okay, here's my example. I'll take you back to the 30s and 40s. Back then there was, as there is today, a large demand for cheap agricultural labor in California. Because of the devastation of their own lands by both natural forces and the expropriative forces of the newly powerful corporate powers of agribusiness, a group of people was forced to leave their homes and look for work elsewhere. They braved great physical hardships in their migrant journey to California and vicious acts of persecution and violence when they arrived as they were accused of taking jobs away from the native population. This is a bit strange to say because they were these people's countrymen and women. They were given a derogatory name, uh, Okies. Not many were able to see the correlation between this group and another small, similar group who were given another name, not derived from a location but an illegal status. These people coming from Mexico were called deportees once their work contracts expired. In 1947, an agreement between the U.S. and Mexico allowed for a special amnesty through deportation. Here's how it worked. Undocumented Mexican workers who were sent back across the border could return to the U.S. as temporary contract laborers. During the life of their contracts, they could not again be deported. In practice, employers often called the border patrol stations to report their own undocumented employees who were then returned momentarily to the border cities in Mexico where they signed contracts with the same employers who had denounced them. This process became known as, quote, drying out wetbacks, and it provided a deportation-proof source of cheap seasonal labor. Now, I want to make clear that the two cases are certainly not exactly parallel. They do not neatly align with one another. What I want to emphasize is that art is not about drawing equivalences, but about helping us imagine points of affinity and from that empathy. And empathy is often a necessary precondition for political action. And I'm not talking about the wishy-washy liberal sentimentalism, which discharges its duties rather quickly. I'm talking about empathy that comes out of that understanding that one shares a historical process with others. Okay, now for the song. It's from the pen of one of America's greatest folk singers, Woodrow Wilson Guthrie. It's him on the left with the guitar with that famous slogan. The figure on the right is his good friend, Cisco Houston. Woody came out of the Dust Bowl era. No other musician could give a better voice to the plight of the Okies. As he wrote and sang about the situation of the small farmer, the rapaciousness of agribusiness. And yet in the song I'm about to play you, he extends that sympathy and political understanding to the Mexican migrant laborers who followed the Okies almost a decade later. The poet W.H. Auden once, once conjectured that if the devil had a phone book, it would have no names, only numbers. In the song, we find a similar issue. The victims are denied any human identity outside their illegal status. The historical processes that brought them to the US that exploited their labor and sent them back to Mexico is erased. And so, so to our place in the global economic structure that creates the need for cheap labor, the depressed wages in their home country, and the benefit of risking deportation to come to the US and earn a real wage. What we find then is not only an intellectual erasure, but a moral one as well. As we listen to the song, I'd like us to pay special attention to the distribution of pronouns and possessives. Who at any one point in the song are we, are you, and how does Guthrie frame these shifting relations in terms of their historical relationship, a history that's the backbone of the story? I want you to listen to the careful movement between a collective identification with the dead and with an ethical question that assumes responsibility for his difference between them. As Woody became increasingly political, his concerns broadened. 
One of his most eloquent songs deals with the mistreatment of the Mexican farm workers. The song's a deportee or plane wreck at Los Gatos is based on a true incident where I think my dad was looking in the newspaper and read about a plane load of uh, migratory workers uh, who were being shipped back to Mexico because they were illegal aliens. The plane crashed and they all died and the radio report said something like, well, it's just a plane load of, uh, of deportees. And this was just another incident where he could tell a story without having to make a big political or social spiel. He could just say, this is what happened. Crops are all in, the peaches are rotting, the oranges are piled in their creosote dumps. They're flying you back to the Mexico border to pay all your money to wait back again. My father's own father, he waited that river, they took
just one comment. The reporter, rather than giving any other information about them, simply identifies the dead at de as deportees. That act of stripping away their names and their lives once compelled Guthrie to write the song. In it, he endows them with the names that were never, they were never, never given by the press. Now, of course, he had no way of knowing their actual names, but he creates a fiction wherein he not only knows them, but they're, they're his friends, his intimates, and the song progresses as he both attaches himself to them and recognizes his difference from them when he asks, is this the best way we can grow our big orchards? I think that this distance is what we need to be willing to forward in not just our imaginations, but in and through historically informed imagination. And that is what this panel is all about. Now let me introduce our panelists together and then they'll speak in the order that I'll introduce them. Hazel Rose Marcus is the Davis Brack Professor in the Behavioral Sciences in the Department of Psychology at Stanford. Previously, she was a faculty member in the Department of Psychology at the University of Michigan, and also a research scientist in the Institute for Social Research at the University of Michigan. Her research focuses on the role of the self in regulating behavior and on the ways in which the self is shaped by the social world. She's written on self schemas, possible selves, the influence of the self in the perception of others, and on the constructive role of the self in adult development. Her most recent work is in the area of cultural psychology and explores the interdependence between psychological structures and processes and social, uh, socio-cultural environments. She's a fellow at the American Psychological Society and the American Psychological S Association. She was also a member of the MacArthur Research Network on Successful Midlife Development. She was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1994. In 2002, she received the Donald T. Campbell Award for Contributions to Social Psychology. She currently, she currently serves as the co-director of Stanford's Research Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity. Most recently, she has co-edited a book entitled Engaging Cultural Differences, The Multicultural Challenge in Liberal Democracies. And she's the author of numerous articles, uh, papers on the influence of sociocultural context on self, competence, choice, and well-being. Co-presenting with Professor Marcus is Paula Moya, who is Associate Professor of English at Stanford. A native of New Mexico, she spent time in Texas and New York before coming to California in August 1996 to begin a career as an assistant professor at Stanford. Although her research interests lie chiefly in the areas of Chicano cultural studies and feminist theory, her intellectual and teaching interests incorporate 19th and 20th century American literatures, post-colonial literature, and literary and cultural theory. Her main theoretical concern centers on the relationship between a subject's social location and her identity and seeks to interrogate the epistemic and political consequences of social identity. Moya is the author of Learning from Experience, Minority Identities, Multicultural Struggles, as well as several published essays on Chicana feminism, feminist theory, and epistemic um, significance of minority perspectives. She's also the co-editor with Michael Hames Garcia of Reclaiming Identity, Realist Theory, and the Predicament of Postmodernism. She formerly served as the director of the undergraduate program of the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity and continues to serve on the administrative committee. I'm especially pleased to welcome back to Stanford Professor Claire Fox, who taught here in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese before she joined the English Department at the University of Iowa in 2001. Professor Fox's teaching and research interests include inter-American cultural studies, Mexican and U.S.-Mexican border arts and culture, visual culture studies, and cultural policy studies. She's the author of The Fence and the River, Culture and Politics <coughs> at the U.S.-Mexico border, border, and her essays have appeared in Iris, 
discourse, social texts, studies in Latin American popular culture, and studies in 20th century literature. She's currently working on a book about hemispheric cultural policy and art criticism during the Cold War. Our final speaker is Otto Santa Ana, who is associate professor of the Department of Chicana and Chicano Studies and co-founder of the Cesar Chavez Center at UCLA. He's a sociolinguist with two strands of research. One strand focuses on the languages of Latinos and the education of language minority children. He has written a dozen articles on these issues in academic journals. His book, Tongue Tied, The Lives of Multilingual Children in American Public Schools, is an anthology that gives voice to millions of people who, in a on a daily basis, are denied the opportunity to speak their own words. Second, he studies how mass media news reproduces and legitimizes anti-Latino and anti-immigrant sentiment. The prevalence of anti-immigrant sentiment in this country is no secret, with killings and beatings on the border and community newsletters condemning the arrival of Latinos. What is perhaps a secret, what was perhaps a secret, is no longer one. In his book on the mass media, Brown Tide Rising, Santa Ana argues that Latinos currently are represented by derogatory images in contemporary U.S. public discourse. These are not petty aggravations or harmless remarks, a re remnants of a blatantly racist public discourse, but they're indexes of continuing prejudicial social values in the U.S. society. The American Political Science Association named the book the best book on ethnic and racial political ideology. Santa Ana is currently studying the television network news of CNN, NBC, ABC, and CBS. Please join me in welcoming today's panelists. So I'd like to just invite anybody who wants to come around and sit down to please go ahead and do so. I know it can't, there's a lot of room over here. I know it's hard coming in, uh, not wanting to interrupt. Okay, do you wanna, are you comfortable there? So in the last session, we learned that many of the most widely circulated claims about the impact of immigration on, for instance, the cost and standard of living, on wage levels, and on government spending are actually unsupported by data. So in this session, we will suggest that our understanding of and approach to every big societal issue, from global warming, to the education gap, to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, our understanding of these issues depends on how the issue is framed, or in the term we will use here today, how it is represented. This is what we're gonna to do today um, in our few minutes. We're gonna talk first about how representations work before we move to a discussion of what are some of the current representations of immigration and immigrants and why they matter. We will then talk a bit about the necessity of representing immigration and immigrants before ending with some concluding observations. So consider today's issue, immigration. It is important for us to ask, how is the issue and the people involved with it being represented? 
what are the images, the narratives, and associations that immediately come to mind? So here we see a variety of uh, representations of the immigration issue that were called from a wide array of sources, from the Minuteman website to syndicated political cartoons published in newspapers across the country. So the question that we need to ask ourselves when viewing these kinds of representations is this. Do they show us the world as it really is? Well, we're going to suggest today that the answer to that question is no. We never see the world the way it really is. In fact, that's an emphatic no. Um, our understanding, uh, our reality always involves representation, and that's the main point we want to underscore today. And this representation takes place through frameworks of meaning that are derived directly from our social and cultural experience. So let me unpack these two points a bit. First of all, we humans imagine that we look at the world and see the world as it really is. It's a very powerful illusion. In fact, however, we construct our reality. Our experience of immigration and immigrants, the subject of tonight's event, is represented reality. And representation takes place with and through the aid of categories, concepts, schemas, stereotypes, narratives, images, metaphors. There's a variety of names for these representations, but these representations, they're common in our world, and that's, these are our tools for, for understanding the world, for constructing reality. We, we can't do without them. We, we can't live outside of them. Now, importantly, we use them to make sense of our world, and we use them to communicate with each other. These representations are not just a random set. They derive systematically, and this is point two here, from our particular social, cultural, and historical experiences. We learn to see the world in particular ways, as our current communities and societies see the world, as our family sees the world, as our political party sees it, as our ethnic, racial, or ethnic groups see the world, as women see it, as men see it, perhaps as the Stanford community sees it. These social and cultural contexts are the source of our representations. Now, we can exert some control over which representations we use in constructing our reality, but very often we, we don't have much control. These representations that we use to make sense of the world and to communicate with each other are in the air. They're out there in the world, and we just pick them up as we live in these worlds. None of us can directly experience the world in an unmediated way, no matter how hard we try. Um, you can't live without your representations, and so for that reason, you need to pay attention to what are those representations, you need to pay attention to the context you're in, and what are the ones that are pervasive there, and you're picking up as you're just going around, those will be the ones that, that you'll use. Now, many, many famous studies in psychology, that's my field, have um, demonstrated this important point. And I just want to show you one classic study. It's an oldie but a very goodie, um, I think, which reveals the way that our representations affect perceiving, remembering, and communication. It's a study of rumor transmission. And what happened in this study is people showed participants in the study this particular slide. You can see this is 1945. It's a period piece here um, on the subway in New York. And what we see here, you have to look carefully, but look on the left. You see a white man, and in his hand, and he's the one in work clothes, we see a straight razor. And he's talking to a man, a black man, 
in a suit and, and a hat. Participants were asked to study the picture and then to turn away from the picture and to tell a second person about the picture. And then the second person was to, based on what he or she had just heard, to tell a third person about the picture. And then so it went through to the sixth person. After six tellings, you can probably imagine what happened, the razor in the white man's hand shifted to the black man's hand. What this reveals is the way in which seeing and communicating drift toward the culturally dominant representation or the culturally dominant narrative. In this case, black man as perpetrator. People saw, remembered, and told about this picture with the culturally prevalent representation. It was this representation that allowed them to, to construct their reality, make sense of the world. Now, when you update this picture, bring it up to 2006 and do the study again, which has been done, the results are identical to those in 1945. So make of that what you will. Um, representations are powerful in our constructions of reality. Um, since they are so powerful in the way we understand reality, we should be concerned then with how to achieve a balanced and a fair set of representations of a given issue. We thought we'd play with the Fox News. You know, they, they think they're fair and balanced. We thought it'd be balanced and fair. But the, the point is, um, when, you're, when you're working with representations, they don't succeed, but you really need to think about that. So to begin with, what would it look like to um, give a produce a balanced or a fair set or to approach such a balanced and fair set of representations. We think that such a set would be characterized by at least, at least two um, features. A balanced and fair set of representations um, on any question or issue um, would include representations from multiple perspectives. And as a guide to figure out whether you are approaching such a fair set, you might begin by asking yourself, um, when we see any set of representations, where do these representations come from? Who's doing the represent, representing? With respect to immigration, for example, what representations are we seeing? Is it from those who seek to block immigration? We've seen a lot of those. Is it from those who enforce immigration laws? Is it from those who own the land that immigrants cross? Is it from politicians with anti-immigrant constituents? Is it representations from immigrants themselves, only rarely? Um, is it um, from those who represent immigrants? Do we see their representations? Or is it from the representations of those who gain from cheap immigrant labor? Um, is it from a right-wing cable station? Or is it from a left-wing um, blog? What, when you're looking at these representations, ask yourself, where did they come from? And then the question that goes with it is, who stands to gain, who stands to lose from a particular set of representations? As Luis Fraga made clear in the last time session, the problem of representation isn't just one of knowledge. It's very clearly a political problem. Those with the power in a given situation, those with the sources that give them access to the media, are most often the ones who get to do the representing. And if you get to do the representing, you've got a lot of power. With respect to immigrants, we rarely have the opportunity to see how immigrants see themselves, how they represent themselves, how they represent themselves. So changing the reality of immigration will require then a battle over both political and symbolic power, a battle over how to represent the world. It's a big war. Now, a second feature of a fair and balanced set of representations on a given issue would um, require 
an analysis and representation of the very many factors that contribute to the issue. In the case of immigration, we should, and we started that here last time and tonight, historical factors, economic factors, political factors, and moral and ethical factors are all important and should be aired if your goal, and we think this is the goal when we're um, in an educational setting, is to achieve a fair and balanced representation, is to bring all of these factors to the table, even though you can immediately see that some of them will be very much at um, odds with each other. So what are some of the current representations of immigration and immigrants, and why do they matter? Now, the images, metaphors, and narratives about immigration and immigrants within most mainstream uh, media and political discor discourse are characteristically narrow, negative, and one-sided. Now this has been true historically over time, particularly in the case of non-Northern European immigrants. For instance, representations of Chinese immigrants at the turn of the last century are remarkably similar to those being used to characterize Latino immigrants today. Um, language used to describe Chinese immigrant laborers included warnings that they were pouring in, infiltrating, swarming like locusts, poisoning the moral atmosphere, and undermining free American institutions with their degrading labor. Much like Mexican or Central American immigrants today, Chinese immigrant laborers who came to the United States at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century were subject to restrictive labor laws, immigration quotas, and inhumane traveling and working conditions. This, despite the fact that they were, had frequently been recruited to provide labor that was necessary to the health and the growth of the U.S. economy. So the sort of language and images used to describe immigration and immigrants, we've found also, is characteristically de-individuating and dehumanizing. They're often talked about in terms of um, being, uh, you know, groups of people where you don't get their names. So as illustrated, for instance, by the example of the Chinese laborers, the de-individuation and the dehumanization of immigrants is a feature of rhetoric about immigrants historically, regardless of the actual race or ethnicity of the immigrant group. It's important for you to realize that at different points in our nation's history, we find similar kinds of representations used to describe, for example, Irish, Italian, Japanese, and Filipino immigrants. So for example, the images, metaphors, and narratives typically associated with immigration and immigrants represent them as floods, hordes, alien invasions, disease vectors, societal parasites, and of course more recently criminals, illegals. And as an example, okay, so this, all of these are constructed um, through the course of various kinds of narratives that come to, you know, create the sort of frameworks that um, Professor Marcus was talking about, and we wanted to bring in for you an example of how these narratives get constructed. You know, sometimes they start and there's a representational process that we see. And we can, to do this, we're going to focus on the construction and instrumental deployment of a new narrative and fear-inducing, a new negative and fear-inducing narrative. Think about this. After 9-11, we have seen the creation of a narrative that can be best summed up as immigrant is terrorist. And we're going to see this representational narrative in the process of construction in this next Fox News clip that features... Could I ask you... Um, excuse me.
that features um, Texas Congressman Ted Poe. So we just cut out a little clip, so listen carefully. Could I ask you this, Congressman? Uh, do you believe that if there is another terror attack here, it will somehow have originated from those who came into this country illegally? Yes, that is a, a tremendous possibility because we know the southern border of Texas especially uh, is open. And in, individuals, uh, we have heard that individuals of al-Qaeda persuasion have gone to Mexico, have assimilated into the population, have learned the language, have learned the culture, and then they have moved across into the United States pretending and posing to be immigrant Mexican workers, which they're not. So... Remember, as uh, Professor Marcus told us, that representation takes place through frameworks of meaning that are derived from our actual cultural and social experience. So, you know, after 9-11, uh, a great many people in the United States were very uh, traumatized by the specter of terrorism. And one way to, um, to do this is to take something negative out there, and of course uh, terrorism is just about as negative as you can get, and then attach it to the object that you want to denigrate in order to produce a negative association. And so there we get Congressman Ted Poe talking about people uh, you know, uh, assimilating into Mexican culture and sneaking across the border. So what we get then is uh, the specter of every brown-skinned man speaking Spanish as a potential minion of Osama bin Laden. So you might ask yourself, what are the consequences of unbalanced and unfair representations? And why does it matter? And, and there are very many consequences, but we've pulled out three that we regard as the most serious, and we thought we would just comment on each of those briefly. The first consequence of incomplete and inaccurate representations about immigration is that they obscure the many economic and social reasons why immigrants are willing to make the dangerous trek across the border to work in the United States. And as such, they are constraining the way that we are interpreting the world. And what goes with that is it constrains what strategies we can possibly envision for addressing this persistent um, social issue. As a result, based on narrow and two simple sets of representations that I think very much are characteristic of what most of us are exposed to on a daily basis, we can end up making unfair and ineffective immigration policies. And of course, that would be maybe not so bad for those of us who only reflect on the policies, but there are those of, uh, involved in making the policies and they have the same set of, of narrow um, representations available to them. And what you see is this policy neither solves the problem nor accords immigrants their basic human and civil rights. A second big consequence of incomplete and negative representation is that they insistently perpetuate stereotypes and deny those in the position of being immigrants their humanity. Such representations reinforce the view that immigrants are somehow intrinsically lesser and they take away more from our society than they contribute. This was beautifully illustrated by the, by the Guthrie song that we heard earlier. In the face of such negativity, it's hard for immigrants to be viewed as hardworking or as contributing members of society. And then third, these very negative uh, representations have a variety of consequences for the many non-immigrant Latinos who are associated with the immigrants through race. The different ways of being Latino are effectively constrained to the point that very often the available social roles for Latino or the ways to be Latino are reduced by the prevalent 
representations of immigrants. So we have what, are, what is the way to be Latino? You can be a worker, a domestic, a legal, you can be a criminal, a drug runner, a terrorist. This narrowing of the ways of being Latino reinforces the racial hierarchy and allows whites to maintain a particular fiction of racial superiority vis-a-vis -vis this particular group. I mean, that's usually always easy to do in, in our society, but the immigration um, issue doesn't, debate doesn't help. You'll recall that in our title, we put the hyphen in represent to underscore that representations convey a particular reality. And every time they are invoked, they represent this reality to observers. So in order to find a way to counter some of the negative consequences that we've um, discussed, we need to find ways to broaden the narrow range of representations and to balance the overwhelming negative images and narratives that currently prevail with some, we need to counter them with some powerful and positive ones that stick. Deliberation about complex societal issues in a dem democratic society should begin by representing the problem from multiple perspectives and by implicating all of the factors at work in the problem. And to do this really requires from us some imagination. Because if new representations are to counter old and prevailing ones, they first need to catch the perceiver's attention. And this, um, for this, you sometimes will, can use humor, irony, emotion, pathos, really anything that can help a new representation occupy some of the perceiver's mental space. So we have noted that representations of immigrants and immigration are narrow. They currently uh, concentrate on the fact that immigrants are illegal, they are felons and lawbreakers who take what is not theirs to take, i.e. jobs and healthcare. And as we have just seen, they are now being represented as terrorists. Now in such representations, most of the factors that are actually at work in creating and maintaining transnational flows of people are not represented. They are hidden. Making the background information foreground really is what our, this immigration course is, aspires to do. And I think we had a very successful start uh, last session with presentations by the historian May Nye, the economist David Card, and political scientist Luis Fraga. Next week, Father Daniel Grudy will address some of the ethical context. Images and narratives that perpetuate narrow representations of the issue on immigration can be countered, we want to suggest, by using a wider angle lens and making what has been background uh, figural uh, and what has been invisible visible. Such representations would bring additional factors or context into the picture. And so now I'm going to show you a cartoon which foregrounds usually hidden economic factors. Okay, so in this cartoon, you could, I'd like to, you to look first to the left-hand side where we see a typical upper-middle-class American couple out at a nice restaurant where they are enjoying a fine dinner. The man is reading a newspaper and he sees a news item about the possibility perhaps of creating a day to honor uh, the labor leader Cesar Chavez. Now the idea that he might be um, honored infuriates the man and he asks his dinner um, companion, what have the farm workers ever done for me? He then pauses to ask her whether she'd like more wine. She agrees and says that she wants more salad too. So together, they indicate that they have never really given any thought to how the products they are consuming, in this case their grapes and their lettuce, got to their table. So what we see in this cartoon is that the Chicano cartoonist Lalo Alcaraz has, what he's done here is to uh, widen out our angle of vision, to 
pull back so that we see the um, laborers and we see the labor that might possibly have been done by undocumented Mexican workers that was necessary to make this dinner possible in the first place. So I'm going to show you another cartoon here. And this one, wh whereas this cartoon here brings forward some of the hidden economic factors, this next one um, brings out typically hidden historical factors. So what you see here are two pilgrims coming ashore after having disembarked from the Mayflower in the background there. They're greeted by two people indigenous to the region who ask, by the way, you don't happen to have your guest card workers, do you? your guest worker cards, uh, do you? So what this quickly shows you is that America is a country of immigrants. Even the founding fathers were at one time in the position of the potentially illegal immigrant. From the perspective of the Indians, the pilgrims had no particular right to be there. They could have been constructed as our Mexican and Central American immigrants today as unwelcome alien hordes who are going to ruin the economy and change the character of the place. And some might argue that they did just that. <laughs> One way to counter negative representations of immigrants and immigration, um, besides these ways that, that uh, uh, enlarge or put a wider angle lens on, um, on the issue, bringing in economic and historical factors, is to go directly to positive images that will evoke a sense, of a sense of identification and that counter the very prevalent de-individuation that's characteristic of most representations of immigrants. These are remarkably hard to find and we kind of challenge you to look for the positive ones, but they do occur and when they do, they're, they're worth noting and evaluating how well they work. Consider the following story from an article in the San Jose Mercury News featuring Hector Vega who is attending Santa Clara University right now on a full scholarship. Hector is a young man, an undocumented immigrant from Mexico, and a National Merit Scholar winner, who graduated from James Lick High School in East San Jose with a 4.0 GPA. The article that accompanied this photo talked about how Hector is stepping out of the shadows, declaring publicly, soy ilegal, and reminding us all that undocumented Mexican immigrants, whatever else they may be, are also young people with dreams, hopes, and aspirations, just like yourselves. Now, yet another approach to uh, the problem of countering predominantly negative representations would be to highlight the immigrant background of famous people who have made positive contributions to the wider society. And so we pulled a few people off and uh, we were wondering whether you would know who these people are. So we've got uh, I, Santana. Surely people know who Santana is. So music. Uh, Oscar de la Renta. Um, so uh, fashion. Sammy Sosa, for all you baseball lovers out there. Dolores Huerta, labor leader. And Alberto Gonzalez. Um, uh, <laughs> okay. So, so now uh, this brings us. Oh, actually, I think we were going to have. No, 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 I guess that's in. This brings us to the issue of uh, representational autonomy. Now, what we mean by representational autonomy is that the people most directly affected in a given uh, issue really should have the right to represent themselves as they see themselves and as they would like others to see them. Now, currently, most immigrants are seen from the point of view of others. And as we can see, while these can sometimes be positive, they don't take the place of the voices of immigrants themselves. 
and there are in fact very few representations to be, very such representation to be found. Now we're going to show you a recent clip um, from a 60 Minutes episode called Dying to Get In. And this clip provides a few moments of representational autonomy for the, at least the family of a young man whose fate represents one of the tragedies of our current immigration policy. In the Arizona desert, Border Patrol agent Neubauer gets word 18-year-old Abron Gonzalez, who'd been wandering in the desert for seven days, has been found. I have a approximately 18-year-old male laying flat on his back. Abron Gonzalez had died of thirst just a few hours earlier. It's hard to know that maybe you could have been out there to help this person and uh, um, just weren't able to, but that's something you have to, you have to deal with and, and move on. Gonzalez came from this small town in southern Mexico. He'd gone to the U.S. to earn enough money to buy a new tin roof for his parents' house. The parents had borrowed $300 for Abron to make the trip, money the parents still owe. Here he is as a boy when he was 12 years old. His cousin, Casimira Manuel, was the first to be told. The man from the consulate called and told me they found Abran in the Arizona desert, and he was dead. He was a quiet kid. He never hurt anybody. He just wanted to work and come back home. in the minority position in any society, in the minority position because of gender, race, ethnicity, they most often lack such representational autonomy. And when you recognize how important representation is, you can see what a, um, what a problem this is. And so just to sum up the points we were making about um, representing immigrant narratives, Um, I'll just read them to you, um, the ones on the slide. It's important to situate the issue, in this case immigration, in relation to a wider economic, political, and ethical context. It's important to make what has been invisible visible. It's important to counter negative with positive images, to represent all sides or as many sides of this issue as one conceivably can, and to allow participants of the conversation to enact representational autonomy. And now by way of conclusion, because I see we're at the allotted time here, I just want to make a um, few points. Representation matters. It matters for citizens of a complex democratic society like our own. If we are involved in trying to understand what is at stake in any given societal issue as we begin to engage in the debate, whatever side we take on the issue, um, it's important to, to recognize that all reality involves representation and to consider the diversity of the representation that you are using to think with and through. Do you hear different voices? Do you see different views? When you encounter representations that are overwhelmingly negative, ask yourself, are there other ways to represent this issue that are, that are missing here? Um, most often you will find that there are other ways. And then finally, to keep asking yourself who gains and who loses in light of any particular set of representations. Thank you.
just shut this down? Thank you. Both of those um, presentations were perfect setups for what I will be discussing tonight, which is um, how the Mexican cinema has portrayed immigrants. Um, and often the messages surrounding immigration within Mexico and within political debates in Mexico is very fraught, just as it is in the United States. And um, I also wanted to frame my comments tonight in light of Bush's proposal to reinstate a guest worker policy along the lines of the Bracero program that was in effect at the time that the song Deportee was composed. So that's another perfect accompaniment to my presentation. Um, the first Mexican movie to broach the topic of immigration was the 1922 silent film called El Hombre Sin Patria, or The Man Without a Country. It was written, directed, and produced by Miguel Contreras Torres, and the movie tells the story of a young wastrel who, upon being banished from his house by his father, crosses the border into the United States. Rapidly depleting his savings due to his decadent lifestyle, the unwitting Bracero is obliged to work in demeaning jobs and experiences racism and oppression for the first time. At the movie's bittersweet conclusion, the prodigal son returns home to the mother country and the bosom of his family. According to Mexican cinema scholar David Maciel, the movie's ideological message is clear. If you emigrate to the United States, nothing but racism and oppression await you. As difficult as your situation might be in Mexico, you still will have family warmth, familiar surroundings, and the opportunity to work toward building post-revolutionary Mexico. El Hombre Sin Patria attests to the fact that popular narratives about Mexican immigration to the United States follows, followed almost immediately on the heels of the Mexican Revolution, which came to an end in 1920 and affected tremendous displacement of people within Mexico and across Mexico's borders. In 1922, the border was not nearly as fortified as it is today, and many binational communities enjoyed a relative ease of movement and interaction from one side of the border to the other. In fact, um, building upon what professors Marcus and Moya just presented, the Border Patrol was created um, at the turn of the 20th century to intercept undocumented Chinese workers. And there's an immigration historian named Erica Lee who has shown that an elaborate strategies of, of passing were adopted by Chinese undocumented workers in order to cross the border which they would masquerade as Mexicans, Native Americans, and even on rare occasions as African Americans. Mexicans were not intercepted, were not targets of Border Patrol activity until, on a large scale, until the Great Depression. Um, even so, El Hombre Sin Patria effectively links the moral, ethical ramifications of border crossing to questions of national identity and citizenship in a way that would provide a template for many immigration narratives in decades to come. This nexus of personal ethics and state policies concretized around the figure of the bracero. How does one view this stateless protagonist? As a traitor to the nation? A hero who refuses to accept his lot in life? Or as a victim of US imperialism and racism? Contemporary scholarly research on the quote unquote Mexicanization of immigration 
to the United States has given us a rich analytical vocabulary of bilocated subjects, transnational migratory circuits, dollarized pueblos, and a regional diasporic greater Mexico. These terms displace older approaches to the subject that tallied push and pull factors according to rational choice models and described a three-generational process toward acculturation, often taking Ellis Island immigrant populations as their paradigm. Given this new wave of transnational research, it may seem anachronistic on my part to distinguish national perspectives on immigration. Yet, I argue that Mexican movies about immigration are important precisely because of the way that they attempt to correlate the representation of migrant experiences with questions of state policy. Mexican film production is historically tied to the state. The three movies I will be discussing this evening, in fact, were all produced with state subvention and oversight. As Toby Miller and George Udise have argued, Cultural policies bridge anthropological and aesthetic conceptions of culture. In similar fashion, the movies that I will show tonight or show clips from tonight attempt to connect the vernacular cultures of immigration through the incorporation of popular music, uh, slang, and innovative language use, and thematic emphasis on labor and everyday life to binational debates about immigration policy. They remind us that policy is not just the purview of the United States or of binational elites, but rather a complex multilateral project in which immigrants themselves are increasingly organizing themselves collectively to represent and articulate their interests. The movies I discuss date from the Bracero program, NAFTA period, and post-NAFTA period, respectively. Using El Hombre Sin Patria's My Point of Departure, I chart points of continuity and rupture with regard to the representation of the Bracero figure. And I conclude with several observations about how these films relate to current proposals to reinstate a large-scale Bracero or guest worker program. And the first movie I'm going to mention is Espaldas Mojadas. If El Hombre Sin Patria was the first Mexican film to broach the topic of US-Mexico immigration, the 1953 production, Espaldas Mojadas, or Wetbacks, was the first feature-length Mexican movie to introduce border crossing as a fundamental feature of immigration narratives. With its representation of a U.S.-Mexico border so militarized that Border Patrol agents act on shoot-to-kill orders from high atop sentry posts stationed along the river, the border of Espaldas Mojadas undoubtedly evoked media portrayals of no man's land demarcating European borders in World War II, as well as those of the ongoing Korean War. The movie was perceived as so critical of Mexican immigrant situation in the U.S. that its release was delayed for two years. Espaldas Mojadas was produced at the outset of a three-year temporary suspension of the Bracero program, which ran from 1962 to 1964. During this interim period, General Joseph M. Swing directed Operation Wetback, a program reminiscent of the massive deportations of Mexicans that had occurred during the repatriation program of the Depression era. Swing himself was no stranger to the border. He was a veteran of the U.S. punitive expedition in Mexico that sought in vain to capture Pancho Villa during the Mexican Revolution. Espaldas Mojadas was the first Mexican movie to explore the phenomenon of bilingualism 
as well as border culture and the Mexican-American population in the border region. Its plot revolves around the budding romance between a pursued bracero, Rafael, and the waitress who harbors him, Mary. Mary's spontaneous confession to Rafael that she is really named Maria del Consuelo and that she's a pocha, um, which is a derogatory word um, that I think reveals the Mexican centralist perspective of this movie, um, a derogatory word that a Mexican might use to describe a Mexican-American offers an interesting glimpse into Mexican perceptions about Mexican-Americans and about racial issues in the US. And before I run this clip, I just wanted to review some of the dialogue because this is not a subtitled copy. One of the key questions that Rafael asks Maria is, um, ¿Por qué no te regresas al macizo? Why don't you go home? Why don't you go back to Mexico? And his use of the word macizo to talk about Mexico is an interesting colloquialism. It literally means the solid one. And I think it reveals a lot about the sense of Mexico as the only way of conceptualizing a homeland for people of Mexican ancestry. And Maria del Consuelo responds, and I, I translated this into English, our disgrace, meaning the disgrace of Chicanos is worse than the blacks. Although they were born here like we were, they don't know where they come from, nor do they have the temptation of a homeland, a patria. Besides, they defend themselves, they form groups, they have dances, they marry and console one another. As for us, the Mexicans, La Raza, don't love us, and the whites, Los Bolillos, another derogatory word, well, you've seen. I'll go ahead and run that clip and then come back. Gracias. 
So don't worry, a happy ending awaits this couple. Um, <laughs> at the end of the movie, they're reunited on the banks of the Rio Grande, Rio Bravo, on the Mexican side. And Rafael's love rehabilitates Maria and serves as a safe conduct pass for her return to the mother country. Her final words are, Para la mujer no hay más mundo que el hombre que uno quiere. For a woman, there's no world but the man she loves. And these suggest that, from a Mexican centralist perspective, the idea of a bicultural code-switching fronteriza was still inconceivable. Espaldas Mojada's happy ending points to the controversy surrounding the Bracero program in Mexico. Some intellectuals involved with this production argued that the Bracero program was a convenient safety valve for the rural poor who had been displaced by the government's developmentalist policies. In any case, official and unofficial discourses alike coincided in urging migrants to be true to Mexico and not to be lured by the dollar. This stay-at-home moral invoked by conservative Mexican movie narratives of the era in order to check a restless underclass also appealed to left populists like Espaldas Mojadas's director, Alejandro Galindo. And it persists even to this day in some officialist discourses. Vicente Fox may characterize undocumented workers as heroes, but, for example, in the pamphlets distributed by the elite border police force Grupo Beta, as well as in informational literature about immigration distributed by some Mexican states like Oaxaca, um, the stay-at-home mor moral still exists. Oaxaca, for example, developed an anti-immigration comic strip called Tacho y Quetita in 2002, the comic warns immigrants of the dangers associated with border crossings such as robbery, extortion, sexual abuse, and human trafficking. But all of this is couched in an intergenerational dialogue with a village elder who concludes by telling the would-be migrants, no todo que brilla es de oro, not all that glitters is gold. Espaldas Mojadas' message cannot be understood exclusively in terms of national debates, however. It was long thought that this movie's delayed release was due to internal censorship, namely sensitivity over its representation of the border and national shame, quote unquote, brought on by immigration. Um, yours truly propagated this version of events and I have been aware of um, internal reactions to movies like Los Olvidados, Luis Buñuel's 1950 movie which portrayed poverty very graphically and was not well received in Mexico until it was praised abroad. But recently, film historian Seth, Seth Fine found that the US Department of State instigated censorship of this movie. The movie was released eventually with a prefatory disclaimer stating that it was intended to serve as a disincentive for Mexican nationals who were <laughs> contemplating migrating to the US. That is not as primarily a criticism of how Mexicans were treated in the US. Fine argues further that the movie's construction of the border as a clear marker of national and cultural difference undercuts the dramatic economic integration that was already making the border more permeable in the context of the Mexican developmentalist boom of the 1950s. I now move to the NAFTA era to provide a point of contrast with Espaldas Mojadas. 
1994 production, El Jardín del Edén, or The Garden of Eden, directed by Maria Novaro, is a tri-national production of France, Quebec, and Mexico that reflects its own historical moment. Produced on the eve of NAFTA and amidst the implementation of border blockades and heavily trafficked urban border zones, including the San Diego-Tijuana area, where most of the movie's action takes place. For El Jardín del Edén's motley crew of characters who converge in Tijuana, the Garden of Eden lies on the other side of the border, be it north or south. In the case of Anglo siblings Frank and Jane, Baja's indigenous communities and wildlife respectively provide a means of escape or distraction from personal alienation. For Felipe, an immigrant from Zacatecas, the North offers hope of relief from an impoverished rural existence. And finally, for the newly widowed Serena from Mexico City and the Chicana curator Liz, both single mothers, Tijuana offers the possibility of improvising a new family, and in Liz's case, a welcoming place to explore her mestiza cultural identity. El Jardín shows clear engagement with a range of recent border studies work in the arts, humanities, and social sciences. Just as Espaldas Mojadas broke new ground in the representation of bilingualism, so does this movie with regard to its representation of multi-ethnic immigrant communities in the U.S., thus attenuating the preoccupation with a monolithic Mexican national identity so prevalent in immigration movies of previous decades. The ephemeral binational romance that develops between Felipe and Jane comes to an abrupt end in the scene that I am about to show you, when Felipe becomes incensed at Jane's impropriety at a child's funeral in a Mistec labor camp located in Escondido. Note that the service is conducted in three languages, but in a manner reminiscent of Espaldas Mojadas' own linguistic biases, only two of these languages are translated.
El Jardín del Edén, you understand that she shoved money in the woman's purse and Felipe is outraged. This movie challenges previous immigration narratives in that it does not insist on repatriating its Mexican characters or subjecting them to moral repentance. Instead, it actually concludes with a re-entry into the United States. Rather than immigrants sacrificing their identity through border crossing, the movie suggests that immigrants actually develop strong and resilient transnational communities. The movie's closing sequence features a glowing Felipe, now accompanied by his carnalillo, probably the younger brother to whom he is referred to earlier in the movie, gazing out at the Pacific Ocean as they prepare to cross the border into the US. Felipe has exchanged his Norteño clothing for t-shirt, jeans, and sneakers, the garb of the experienced bracero. A reverse shot reveals the objects of the men's gaze to be a pod of whales swimming off the coast. The movie's strategic linkage of migrants to migratory animals serves as a counterpoint to the artificiality of the border fence. And it also mocks the Salinas administration's rather cynical use of the monarch butterfly as a logo for free trade because the monarch butterfly possesses a migratory circuit from Canada to Mexico. Felipe's character in the movie provides a means to explore the broader representations of the US as an Eden from a Mexican perspective. But the movie also avoids graphic depiction of violence and hardships endured by many migrants in the post-blockade period. In the words of David Maciel and Maria Rosa Garcia Acevedo, El Jardín del Edén does not represent the social realities of immigrants crossing the border and their work experiences, nor the individual human complexity of being a Mexican immigrant. For such grassroots perspectives on immigrant experiences, the recent wave of post-blockade documentaries have been truly groundbreaking, including Mojados, Al Otro Lado, and Crossing Arizona, which I understand you've viewed as part of this course. I'd like to conclude my talk with a clip from a 2002 Mexican documentary that features the testimonials of Bracero program veterans as a means of exploring an alternative narrative of repatriation than the one put forth by Espaldas Mojadas. The nearly five million laborers who participated in the Bracero program of the 1940s are now an aging population and their numbers are dwindling. As part of their labor contract, they were assured that 10% of their wages would be deposited in the Mexican Agricultural Bank as a savings fund to be collected upon their return to Mexico. But as of 2002, only 2% 2 had collected their savings. Jorge Luis Vasquez's Seasonal Farm Laborers Program, Sad Recollections, documents the activist movements on the part of Bracero veterans to collect their savings. Only recently after this film was released, did the Mexican government announce that it was prepared to accept applications from Bracero veterans for payment of their savings. And this occurred in the context of Bush and Fox administration's troubled negotiations over Bush's current proposal to reinstate a guest worker program in the US, a clearing of the slate, as it were, to prepare the ground for the next Bracero program. Through reassigning guilt and blame surrounding immigration to elite social actors, sad recollections effectively decouples questions of the Bracero's personal morality from global economic factors that compel immigrants to seek work in the US. The strains of the Cancion Mixteca conclude Vasquez's movie. This classic song describes a migrant's nostalgia for home 
and also figures as a prominent theme in Espaldas Mojadas, where it connotes the Bracero's yearning for Mexico. In Vasquez's movie, in contrast, where it is used as an accompaniment to images of repatriated Braceros, the song affirms that both the positive and negative experiences of immigration continue to haunt these men's daily lives long after their return home. I conclude my talk with this clip.
Thank you so much for uh, for inviting me. Uh, uh, I have come from, uh, although I'm from UCLA, right now I've just come from Washington. So whatever time it is, add three hours to it, and you'll know where I am. Uh, and you'll see that. Aha. The question that was posed at the very beginning of the uh, talk is what I'll be speaking, I'll be addressing directly. I have a very different perspective. Uh, I'm a linguist uh, and uh, got um, drawn into this. When I came to UCLA, I came to UCLA in 1994. I had been in New Mexico and before that for like 10 or 12 years I had been away from the Southwest and so I came in the middle of the uh, uh, situation of uh, Proposition 187, uh, where everything was polarized. And what struck me was that um, this is the question that I posed to us that I actually, actually was the question uh, issue that we originally addressed. Why are we so, why do people maintain these viewpoints without any experience whatsoever about immigrants? Uh, especially when they are unsupported and they're even when presented with alternative images. And I come from a cognitive a linguistic perspective and basically what I argue is that uh, metaphor, the way we understand the world in terms of common sense, it generates uh, the common sense of hegemony. And so uh, you might have had an opportunity to read the piece that I wrote um, uh, which preceded the book on Brown Tide Rising, where I argue very much that we understand the world in terms, not of logic, but in terms of images, representations, as the other professors have presented today, and that I'm going to be looking at metaphor briefly. Um, metaphor, of course, is a mapping of things uh, from one thing that we understand to something that we don't. And um, the cognitive linguist claim is that basically that metaphor is a I tend to believe that metaphor is a privileged uh, trope. It's a concept that we utilize every day uh, to make sense of our world. We operate with it even when we're not, we're not thinking about it. We use it and it's um, very neat since it's a very succinct thing to look at. So um, I can't introduce uh, cognitive science on uh, metaphor. We just have to presume that that has been well argued. And insofar as it's well argued, um, basically the statement is that we understand our world easier by way of images. Representations visually and textually in terms of metaphor are those images that we understand the world. How pervasive do uh, the cognitive linguists believe that metaphor uh, manipulates or frames our understanding of the world? Everything. 80%, uh, some people say 80% of language itself is uh, metaphorical. Uh, all sorts of, if you think about all the love poems that you received or written, uh, think about the, the, how, many, how many metaphors are there for love. In fact, there's only three that we use every day in a regular sort of offhanded way. I'm not talking about the magnificent poetry of, of uh, named poets, but just, you know, the everyday things that you might see in, in song 
and there's three. Uh, scientific mil uh, and we go from the everyday to the most uh, so-called high thinking. High thinking is just uh, when we say, oh, look at the magnificent uh, physicist uh, frameworks and reconceptualizing the world and our world. Well, that's metaphors. They're based on metaphors. And so when there's a paradigm shift, basically what that is is just a shift from one metaphor to another. All our institutions, although I can't argue this in the brief minutes that I have here, um, but read my book. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, I mean, there's a lot in cognitive linguistics and cognitive science that you can take a look at that argues that uh, institutions are based as social, because they're social, uh, on the metaphors that we conceptualize them. And notions of race, ethnicity, gender, and so forth are all structured so I call them political concepts, all of them. And they're constructed in terms of metaphor. The, th the neat thing about metaphor is that we think that they're natural, but they aren't. They're absolutely human in their construct. But we treat them as if they were. We, once we get a metaphor that's, that rings with us, we operate as if the world was constructed in that in terms of the metaphor. And we've heard, already spoken about backgrounding and foregrounding of these core concepts. Metaphors always foreground things. They always privilege some perspective at the exclusion of others. Since reality is not, uh, is not two-dimensional, and metaphors are in some sense are, obviously they're inherently limited. And, oh, I got, I'm cut off here. Well, anyway, we generate our worldview by way of them. So that's my book. And, uh, the, what I want to, we were asking at, at the end, Professor Moya asked if uh, what kind of reconceptualization, why well, put one at the very top? Uh, after all the sadness that I read and worked in my work on uh, representations of immigrants, I, I was in a, in a deep funk for about six weeks. I could not get out of bed. And my wife said, well, why are you so bummed out? And I said, well, all these representations of immigrants and Latinos are so negative that are you know, that are diffused and promulgated through the world uh, in terms of mass media, and she says, "Well, do something about it." And I said, "Well, what?" And she goes, oh, "Just I mean, you're you're a linguist. Just like come up with a new metaphor." And of course, I said, "Oh, okay." Uh, and so, of course, what the professor does is immediately goes and he says he puts it to his students and he says, "All right, if you want an A." come up with new metaphors. And some of the metaphors for immigrants, they immediately went to the poets. They went to the poets, they went to images in, in music and, and popular culture and scoured for that A. Uh, and one of them was they talk about immigration as a stream that, that makes the desert bloom. And that was a, a translation of, a, of a, another corrido, a little line in a corrido. I don't know whether it was or if my student made it up, but he got an A too. Um, um, so basically what I did, and, and just to recap really briefly, I, I am keeping my minutes here, so I, we will not go over. Um, what I did is I, I looked at in Brown Tide Rising, uh, using this notion of cognitive science and the privileging metaphor, I looked at thou, uh, 600 texts, 674 texts over seven years. And this was 
basically from the Los Angeles Times. And so that came out to 4,500 metaphors. I used intersubjective reliability exam tests. So what I basically did is I had three groups of students reading, uh, let's say, um, 100 articles. But there was one third of those articles overlapped. So once that different groups of people had come to some consensus about what the basic metaphors were, then um, I brought the groups together to discuss what they found in common. And so it was like 96, 97% um, concurrence between different groups. And, and then I said, well, let's find the common denominator. Uh, and they only threw out a few metaphors. They would always come to an agreement. They just, oh, that's a better way of characterizing. That was basically the differences. And so we found incredible continuity. Uh, for those of you who didn't read the article, I'll just give you the summary. Basically, uh, I looked at immigration and immigrants. And for immigrants, during the 92 to 94 period, the major finding was that immigrant, the major metaphor for immigrants was immigrants are animals. And there was exactly 87 instances of this in 101 articles. So that was 34% of all the metaphors. I don't have really time. Oh my God, this is like, um, it's uh, about three quarters, it's three quarters, uh, one quarter is cut off. So, and there's a lot of junk in the bottom that I keep. So as I go through this, um, the other metaphors were all negative too. The immigrants as soldiers, so war metaphors, dangerous water metaphors, disreputable people, commodities, aliens, of course, objects like a tonk. A tonk would be something like, uh, well, a tonk is, for example, the, uh, that was a sound that the, uh, when you use a, a, an aluminum baton on someone's head, like the migra does, like the, uh, the ICE people, what do they call it nowadays? I don't even, the agents of immigration. Uh, the, they would call a, a immigrants tonks because that's the sound a, a baton would make. And they were also called weeds. Let me go to that one just a second. The, the upshot of the findings also was that of the hundreds of metaphors, only one instance of a metaphor was positive. Most of them were negative. All the types of them were negative. And uh, Latinos were all considered to be um, immigrants. So I, I tried to differentiate systematically whether we were talking about immigrants or native-born US Latinos. The metaphors blurred. And what was most sad was that there was the proponents of the uh, immigration uh, restriction uh, referendum, thank you, um, and, they're, they're, and the, the opponents use exactly the same metaphor. For example, La Opinion and uh, Los Angeles Times use the same thing. Carecen and uh, the, the people that were Save Our State use exactly the same metaphor. Basically what I say was that in the Los Angeles Times and in the public discourse of 94, there was only one single discourse for immigrants and that was a negative one. And so you could only vote because everything that the advocates for immigrants were, deni they were denying. And you know, psycho psychologically, if you say, no, I didn't do it, or they, you know, I'm not really a criminal. They're not really criminal. In some sense, that's affirming the image rather than presenting an alternative one. So, update. 
this, I have a Chicano Studies 168 class, uh, my undergraduates, and these are the guys who, did, who followed through. And uh, they wrote, we wrote up a little, um, a little statement. We didn't get it out as we wanted to, but what you got was our final statement. So they had done different studies. And so we looked because of, I won't be able to talk about the social movement or the marches very much. I presume that all of you are aware of what took place and we may not understand what's going on, but definitely we know that it happened. And so what we looked at is how the media looked in 2006, 12 years later, at what the immigrant discourse was. And, and so Ellen Park did a study of headlines and she looked uh, longitudinally and what we saw was that there was a decline of the notion of illegal alien as a term, but it was, it was very, very substantial in the 80s and by the 2001 it had disappeared. There was an increase. We were looking to see whether there were two discourses. In the 94 it was clear there was only one discourse. But because George Bush in, in, in 2004, probably to uh, attract a conservative Latino vote, spoke about his initiative for, on immigrants. I was on, driving on 101 on my way to school, and I, don't, I have a really old car, and it doesn't tell me what station I am. So I just sort of push one button. That's all it works. And so I push the button until I get my station. Again, it goes through a sort of a circuit. And I'm pushing it. I can't tell what station I'm on. And I got George Bush on the line. I mean, you know, and I thought, I thought it was a parody because he was talking about Amer uh, immigrants as Americans by choice. I said, yeah, sure. You know, this is, this is some joke. You know, it's a Saturday Night Live skit. It was really funny. And then all of a sudden I realized it was the, it was the guy. <laughs> I almost, you know, I can eat uh, my yogurt, drink my coffee and talk on the cell phone and drive on the 101. But I had to get off the road. It was so astonishing. It was an incredible statement. And what he tried to do was to legitimize a humanizing, excuse me, humanizing discourse for immigrants. And so that was the question we posed. Was there one or two discourses in the general uh, newspaper media? There has been, uh, and so Ellen found that there was an increase, by just looking at headlines, there was an increase in the uh, humanizing metaphors. Uh, but basically, uh, we saw there was even less use, there was even more use of metaphors. So it was even more dangerous because metaphors are, are in some sense problematic unless you use pairs of them or multiple ones. And what happened was we could see that Bush's, what Bush, Bush's uh, idea was completely rejected. And so there was an increase of negative metaphors after Bush's humanizing discourse came out. Uh, we did a little study to just look at the word illegal and undocumented to see if there were some balance between those two terms. From my point of view, and I've written about this, the notion of calling someone an illegal alien or illegal immigrant is a politicized position. And so when the, the journalists use that notion, that term illegal, that is taking a political position. They cannot be neutral. Likewise, on the left, to call an immigrant undocumented is also, that's a euphemism. And so that also is politically positioned. Hey, you know, I still call my people undocumented because I take a political position too. But as a social scientist, I want to point out that both there's 
euphemism and diffusivism, the opposite, okay? And so I looked to see how many references to immigrant, uh, illegal and to uh, undocumented there were. Uh, you might see it's a, it didn't come out very well with the italics. But undocumented was used in the spring of 2006 one in ten times for every time illegal was used. But it didn't have to do really, if, if Bush had anything to do with it, it was a, a, a later consequence. And basically what we basically found longitudinally is there, the press is, does not use, does not have a neutral position in this, in this issue. We looked specifically at the spring of 2006. And um, Erica Torres did a study. Um, I mean, you can imagine these poor kids, they have to go from zero to 60 in metaphor theory. And then they have to learn empir empirical research. And then they've got to get it done all in 10 weeks. Ah! So they're exhausted. But she did a great job. Uh, and let's see what she found. Oh, yeah, that basically most newspapers take a very clear position. There's no fairness. There's no balance whatsoever. Only one newspaper used both, uh, both types of terminology. Oh, the uh, Omaha World Herald. I always clap because these guys did it right. And two newspapers, I don't, although I don't have who they are, I, she didn't put that in her paper. Uh, and then she, she, got, she graduated, so I lost her. <laughs> So, I mean, I wrote an email to her and it bounced back. I mean, come on, she, she was out of there. And so uh, two newspapers avoided both using illegal and undocumented. By the way, I recommend uh, using the notion unauthorized because there it's neither, it's clearly an issue that it's not, it's, it represents, I think, the situation of immigrants uh, who don't have documents and who are labeled Ill, uh, illegals. Uh, in, in a, well, there's a problem with it, but it's, it's better than what it's called now, at least in the newspapers, you see. Now, um, we talked about also policymakers and the Congress, and so what uh, Linda Alfaro and Sandra Trevino did was to, oh boy, I've got to hurry. So basically, they looked at the Senate, and the Senate really found uh, this to be uh, the Senate's senators uh, of the Judiciary Committee uh, continue to use Ill immigrant as alien far more than the regular press. So they're, they're atavistic. Uh, and Democrats talk about people as commodities and Republicans talk about them as criminals. And then Jose Flores, he's the guy that, he said, you know, Jay Leno, I like the guy, but I hate his immigrant jokes. And I said, what? Because I, have, I don't get, I'm usually not up this late. And so I, and definitely by 11 and 30, I'm gone. So uh, even on a good day. So he TiVoed for six days of, of, um, of, um, of monologues by Jay Leno, who had 34 jokes about immigrants. And so this is what we're going to be talking about. I'm going to uh, rush through this basically. This guy makes a lot of money. He, but he also has a long track record, 15 years, 5.9 million people. And look at how many jokes he does yearly. His audience is huge. It's equivalent to any news, like uh, uh, the evening news. It's bigger than uh, three combined newspapers. And, and in two days, more than 
the 20 top newspapers readership. And what's amazing is that late night comedians, you guys know it too, have a lot more influence than they did a few years ago. I mean, even though the, the, the audience has shrunk everywhere else in, in the networks, late night television's got it. And people in the 18 to 29 bracket um, get more of their news there, 21%, than Americans overall. I want to tell you a little bit about how jokes are funny. Why are jokes funny? Why do we laugh at jokes? When we, when you, we'll see these jokes, it's, it's kind of weird. I, I saw them, basically there's a discourse aspect, an evolutionary aspect, and a psychological aspect. Let's listen to one. I hope. In Orange County, the president is still here. He was talking about immigration. President Bush said that massive deportation is unrealistic. He says you can't just move 12 million people to another country. I don't know. Mexico did it. <laughs> All right, yeah, no one laughed, huh? Well, you guys have gotten a little nerd or, or a little annoyed. Basically, what happens here is that what we expect jokes, when we, we know what the genre of joking is. And what basically happens is the comedian sets up linguistically two um, incongruent parts of a story. A, a normal narrative, no, no, let's say, a, a storyline narrative is X goes to Y, Y goes to Z, Z goes, and so forth. You know the order, you know. He saw her eyes, she smiled back, he walked toward her, and, you know, you know what the rest is, right? I mean, that's, but a joke sets up, you expect to be not told a story of that sort, you get this incongruent script. And then, boom, a good storyteller, a good joke teller with a punchline that's perfect, makes you laugh because it fits that puzzle pieces together perfectly. Pluck. Okay? Now here's the, that script. <laughs> Currently 12 million people have been deported, as he calls it. Bush says deporting them is impossible. I, thus, thus, Bush is stupid. I love saying that. <laughs> then there's the second part of the how we laugh. You know, have you, you guys, when you, I see a lot of canines right now, a lot of canine teeth. Why do we show our canines? I mean, we're not threatening, or are we? The view, there's a viewpoint that's really old that says that we, this laughter is like a modified howl of a primitive human who has just beat his enemy. Ah! <laughs> it's true. And who, that's the argument. It's been, it's argued, there's a lot of people who argue that. And what it means is that there's always a butt of a joke. There's somebody who's gotten beaten. So you laugh if you feel happy about your superiority. And Bush is the butt of the joke. And there's always a butt. Although you don't see it there. Oh my God, this is, I'm, I'm really still down by a third. So anyway, the psychological release thing is also this that we release emotional pressures of different sorts when we laugh, okay? So when we laugh at Bush, we reinforce our 
you know, regular folk. I mean, this guy is the most powerful man in the world. We don't might not agree with him, or we might not like the fact that he, whatever we don't like about him, or the fact that he's so powerful. Well, we, when we laugh at him, we bring him down a notch. He, and we have solidarity about us, the guys who are getting pushed around, who have no control over our lives, and he has so much control. So the viewers' social tensions are dissipated when Leno makes this concocted joke about the president. It creates in-group solidarity and at the expense of the but, the out-group member. And it's really nice because, hey, we can poke at fun of those guys because they're not here. They won't punch you in the face. I know, one minute, right? And yesterday here in California, President Bush gave a speech in Orange County. He spoke on immigration. As he spoke, the crowd grew larger and larger. Well, that was just some more people illegally immigrating. So really, I had nothing to do with the speech. It just kept filling up the, you know, filling up. Well, the upshot of all my talk is that he went through and did, uh, Leno did 17 of, 17 of, 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 um, 17 of 34 jokes were standard jokes against big, powerful people. And that's a great democratizing thing. But the other one was when he made jokes about immigrants. When he made jokes about immigrants, such as... It was like 385 this morning when I filled it. Oh, man. We have the highest gas prices in the country. Given that how expensive gas is now, it is now cheaper to hire illegal immigrants to push your car where you want to go. <laughs> Did you know that? It's actually, yeah. I didn't know that. So there's a lot of implications that basically what he's doing, instead of laughing, bringing someone down who's so powerful, we're taking the most vulnerable people and laughing at them. What, we can only laugh at them if we have no empathy or even sympathy for those people. If I made a joke about your mother, you would hit me. All right? So... But so if we laugh at these jokes as his audience does, there's an indication that there's tremendous anxiety on the part of the audience. It's 5.6 million. Now, what he did though, although he doesn't know social theory, uh, what, what Leno did was he laughed at all the aspects of what the social movement is about. The worthiness, the utility, the numbers, the commitment. He made fun of... Uh, of the worthiness, the legitimacy of the marches. He made fun of, of the solidarity of the community. He made fun of the numbers. He made fun of the commitment. I don't have time, ultimately, to show you all the jokes. Um, but I guess I could show you one. But a uh, but spokesman for the immigrants said today that they made their point yesterday and they will never have to stay home from work in huge numbers like this again until Friday for Cinco de Mayo. But other than that... Okay. As you know, today was Don't Take Your Illegal Immigrant to Work Day here in Los Angeles. <laughs> now, all across the nation, today is what they call a day without immigrants. That's what they were calling it, or as Native Americans call it, the good old days, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> As you know, illegal immigrants, uh, well, they walked off their jobs, skipped school today. And to teach America a further lesson, people now living in Mexico refuse to sneak across the border till tomorrow. <laughs> you know, we had protesters. I don't know if you saw it, you folks. 
We had protests this morning right here in front of NBC. It got a little scary. Oh, Show yeah. the security camera footage. Take a look at the front of NBC. You see what I'm saying? Look at this. Yeah, I mean, it looked pretty bad. Yeah. There they are scanning the wall. You see? Yeah. Okay. Oh. Well, I'll just finish up. Basically, what we see is that uh, he's a gesture. Uh, the comic, the clown cannot, cannot make the king upset or he'll, his head will be cut off. And, his, and so it's not Leno, it's his audience who's the king. But his audience allows him to distort facts, make incredible use of uh, uh, casually to make uh, articulate stereotypes and to evoke a deep-seated anger. He makes them forget the legitimacy of the marches and he lets them off the hook so they can drift off the sleep feeling the sleep of the righteous. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Okay. Um, if the panelists want to come and sit down, we can have some time for questions. We have a couple people with microphones. Questions, comments? Yeah. My name is Ni Adi. Um, I'm from Ghana, uh, West Africa. And um, in some of the, the, the talks we've, we've heard, that, that there's been some talk about the, the, the global implications of, of immigration and so on. And I want to make a comment and also pose a question. Um, in, in, in looking at, for example, the census numbers, you, you find that about 5% of, as well as the 2000 census, about 5% of, of immigrants to the states, for example, were, were African, African immigrants. And th these African immigrants were about, I think, th where the, the, they have the highest level of education, for example, and also are, are just basically you have a high-skilled high immigration from, from the continent. Unfortunately, because they are such a small number, you, you, you don't get representation, you don't, you don't get the, the, the stories told, you don't, you don't get some of the narratives that we've seen with, uh, with, with, some, of, with some of the immigration stories. Now, this, this uh, brings up an issue of what, what happens with immigration, high-skilled immigration, and how it benefits, for example, the, the U.S., and how its effects on the countries that, that um, fields immigration. So, in, in the case of developing countries, you have uh, places like Ghana, where about 50% or 47% of, 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 of college-educated Ghanaians are either in North America or, or, or in Western Europe. And th the implications in these countries is really huge, the problems with, with um, health, health workers and so on. But these don't necessarily get to be represented as much. I mean, and I was, I, my question goes um, mostly to, to how, how do we, in, in the global context, how does one try to get a representational autonomy as in, in such a case, how do you how do you how do you enable or how do you facilitate how, how do you facilitate that? You know, so that, that question goes to um, to uh, those who talked about the, the, the representation. Thanks. I, 
think we don't have much to answer your question, just to underscore that that's a, a dramatically important point, is how, how we can work towards some representational autonomy. I think all of us up here would agree that finding positive representations of any immigrant group is, 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 is very difficult. And um, what, we, what we can do about it, and especially with regard to um, immigrant groups that aren't in the spotlight right now, um, it's, it's, uh, it's a huge problem. And I think we need to do, you know, we really need to do this creative work like Otto tried with his students to get people to think about, well, how, how could we do this and make it a, make it a um, collective project? Um, I, I, I certainly think it's, um, think it's possible. We haven't done enough work like that. I'll just say very quickly that it's a sad fact that generally um, uh, these groups of immigrants don't get represented at all unless they're perceived as a problem. And I think probably what's happening in, in the case that you're talking about is that they're not perceived as a problem. And, and um, we are aware of how pernicious invisibility is, but um, what exactly to do about it is, um, is something that we need to think about um, that I don't have answers for. My only reaction would be to um, the articles can be written and we can look for venues. The internet is far more accessible to, makes a, a, to publish material, make it available, and uh, just keep pushing because I think there are audiences that should be listening to that and with luck and with uh, persistence, someone might pick it up. I was um, interested in your your students' work about the abandonment and the use of the word illegal alien and undocumented. And I wonder, do you have any theories about what precipitated that change? And were there were there differences in the um, concert the the different kinds of media that were were studying? Uh, journalists are really well. I mean, journalists are really well versed about modern, I mean, about contemporary events. And so they did know what happened with Proposition 80, uh, 187 and the polarization that occurred. I think that the, what Bush did in, 90, in uh, 2004 was to um, ca be a catalyst for very uh, raw sentiments and anger toward immigrants. And so there was the reaction of, for example, the Minutemen, who branded him a, t uh, a terrorist and a traitor and asked and put it on, on their websites that he should be impeached. And the reaction across the board on, about his liberalizing, although I didn't agree with everything there, it was in, in hindsight, it's a liberalizing argument that he was making to, uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, legalize many of the people who've been under, underground. As a consequence of that, I think that journalists tried, not, tried um, more, uh, made greater efforts to try to find other terminology because Bush had made it legitimate. Good evening. Um, I had a question posed to Professors Moya, Marcus, and uh, Santana. Um, specifically in terms of, I, I kind of want to re, uh, quickly revisit the, uh, the, the representation uh, concept specifically. Um, I was wondering, you know, specifically in terms of, um, you know, a lot of the strategies you, you brought up in terms of like um, p 
picking out those positive images and promoting those and that, and that sort of thing. Without um, a systematic kind of institutional support for that, I think that's, that's very, very difficult to do. And I guess the, que the question is how do we, I mean, I think one, one of the things like the, that I was very um, provoked by in terms of uh, Professor Santana in terms of um, sort of like taking, like there's a certain ownage of the, of the discourse that, 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 that the right currently has. Like how do we move from merely picking up um, just uh, representation and how do we move into a greater progressive control of discourse, I guess is what I'm asking. I think it's, once again, it's so important to ask that question and I, and, and I think that most people except people in the humanities, in all the many other fields, they, they, they think this is just a matter of, oh, it's just a matter of words, you know, how, how that it's, um, in most fields we don't recognize the power of representations and images. So. Um, I, I think that's that's really the first step, and as we can distribute this idea, we can then begin to recognize what I guess Madison Avenue is the place that recognizes this most powerfully. But the, but the rest of us, even though we're controlled and manipulated by these images, we've yet to really um, uh, take their um, significance to heart, and many scholars and scientists haven't. And I think now, as we um, develop a, a science of representation, it'll become so clear why it's important to have representational autonomy, why to, to control the discourse as the first thing um, that you do. But I just think we're um, sort of relatively behind in um, uh, our, our understanding of, of this phenomenon. Yeah, so basically the first thing we need to do, and this is I think why we really concentrated on actually doing it, um, is we actually went out and to look for those um, positive images to actually represent um, instead of just taking the critical perspective. I mean, the first thing we have to do is actually think about them. We have to really think about what those uh, metaphors, uh, what words we're using. It's, it's interesting, as uh, Professor Santana pointed out, that, um, that both p the people on the left and the right are using the same term. So, I mean, the first thing that we ha can do is think about them. Second thing we do is actually change our practices. When I first uh, published Brown Tide Rising, uh, it came actually physically in my hands the weekend I was going to the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. And so I went down excited to show them because, in fact, I wanted to show uh, uh, the editors of LA Times who I had had lunch with and other people that this is what the argument was, but of course it was a critique of journalism. And so it went right into the circular file. Um, it, was only f it was only last year that I, I actually made my first presentation to the Orange County Register, the first newspaper that actually was interested. Uh, journalists are not taught about representation theory. Uh, they are not taught about metaphor. The, uh, their content analysis is uh, atheoretical. And so it's really important that we address one of the major purveyors of public discourse, journalism. somewhat more positive when one thinks of 
films like El Norte or The Border or Bosco on the Hudson, we have a much more, I think, positive representations of the immigrant experience. Well, it seems as though, can you hear me? When you're working with a fiction film, a feature-length film, um, one is obliged to develop a character and that necessitates the process of individuation that um, professors Moya and Marcus discussed. On the other hand, I can think of many anti-immigrant Hollywood movies, though. Um, Losing It and a whole number that portrayed the U.S.-Mexico border region as a war zone or some sort of hot spot. Where I find a lot of hope is in alternative media, such as the documentary that I used as my last clip. I think around activist movements, um, relatively low-cost means of representing the movements also tend to accompany them. And video um, increasingly appearing on the web seems to be one site that I'm interested in watching. How about one more question? I just want to make a plug here for the importance of the arts and the humanities. Um, and I think that your question requires that we point that out, that often those alternative representations do take place in the arts, as in the song that uh, Professor Palumbo Loop um, played for us, as well as the analyses of those kinds of things in the humanities. So. Okay, here's another plug for CSRE. This is why we try in CSRE to bring <laughs> social sciences and the humanities together because to solve these problems, you, can, you, you, you can, can't do it in either field alone. You have to have the social scientists, but they have to be fueled by those who are studying the, the, the imagination and the creation of representation. And so I think that's why we, we do a great job. I'm going to also <laughs> make a, a, a negative statement. Um, all the sci-fi movies of, uh, and the most recent uh, genre, uh, style of, or trope of science fiction, uh, Alien, um, Independence Day, um, Men in Black, those are, have been argued, the name escapes me who it is, who argues it, maybe someone comes up with it, uh, um, are uh, immigrants. And uh, so we, we have, uh, expanded we 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 look at the uh, the, the alien now as a representation of immigration and not of a monster the which we did when it was Godzilla versus King Kong um, my name is Flavio Paniawa and uh, so uh, I come from a interdisciplinary program here on campus so your, your approaches to it are very, very interesting and useful to me and the kind of work I do so my question is, it's one in, and it has three parts, okay? So just recently, uh, I went to uh, Los Angeles uh, National Convention for Latinos, right? It was one that hasn't, hasn't been held in like over 70 years or something like that. And it was mostly politicians that attended, very expensive. Uh, but somehow I managed to go to the one day that was really pertinent to me, which was the, the day they discussed immigration. Paid my 50 bucks and went in. The guest speakers uh, at the very beginning breakfast, it was um, one of the fathers in, in uh, like a priest in the Catholic Church in Los Angeles, Dolores Huerta. And both of them echoed each other in saying, and I'm paraphrasing here what they said, the marches of May the 1st took all of us and just shook us. No one expected this amount of people to go out in the streets the traditional leadership that existed and the ways in which these movements are usually channeled were just 
shocked. No one, no one could, could have foretold this, right? So I, I thought that was very interesting um, for one of two reasons. One is that traditional leadership uh, structures are usually within the binary of Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, right? Which leads me to the question of, you know, when we say liberal and progressive media or conservative media, the spectrum is the American political spectrum, which is very limited. Um, and second of all, the, uh, the notion that looms heavily, at least in, in my research, is uh, people that come out of shadows and stuff, right? Reagan was the first one that I remember politicizing the notion that his amnesty project was going to bring people out of the shadow. So the larger metaphor that hangs there is the question of modernity, lucidity, and enlightenment. So if you are outside of enlightenment, and in fact you are in the shadows, which is very strange. So there's a way in which you can be normalized as long as you're cool with modernity and lucidity and enlightenment. Um, so my reply was, or, or, or what I was thinking about was, um, in fact, even though there aren't clear articulations of how undocumented workers are representing themselves now or how they see themselves in the political spectrum of the US, they did one thing that was very important. They assembled the march on May the 1st, which is celebrated all over the world except here in the US. It's International Workers' Day, correct? In America, you celebrate the labor, but not the worker. Um, and there was a major tension between traditional leaders that wanted this march to not happen or to happen after people clocked out and the grassroots activists in Los Angeles who were saying, we're doing this regardless. So there's, a, there's this strange phenomenon that's going on. So um, I guess part of my question is, um, how, do you, how do you deal with those, those types of uh, problems? In other words, the technologies that we as scholars have at our disposition are still within the discourse of modernity do we see something coming from the new waves of social movements that, that you know the migrant I think is a critical part of okay thank that you challenges that I think that's just a great statement of the challenge I don't think I'm speaking for all of us I don't know that anyone's got an answer here but it was a great it was a great Great question, great set of insights. Thank you. <laughs> There's one more hand at the back, and I think that'll be the last question. Do you want to? Alison. Yeah, Alison. Yeah. It just builds a little bit on that question. Um, I, I think that one of the major issues in terms of considering alternatives to a dominant set of negative issues is the way that, exactly the way that workers have been obscured. And historians have shown that about 100 years ago, uh, during the progressive era that labor was at the forefront of much um, debate and that it subsided and disappeared at the same time as Madison Avenue and the advertising age began to fill the airwaves um, and the print media, et cetera, in the 20s. Um, and so I guess one of the questions I was wondering is whether it's, it's really a, a, a milder version of <laughs> what Flavio just asked, which is, you know, are there, are maybe especially taking this really interesting issue of metaphors, which I thought was fascinating, um, and also fascinating to understand that journalists aren't officially educated in metaphors, has, are there any prospects for the ways that metaphors might be used to bring out work and labor into a more 
you know, common discourse that then we can find and talk about. I'm just curious maybe if any of those have surfaced because it seems that that is so very much the key. It, it underlies your question about high-end work, you know, very educated workers and is really at the root of a lot of this. I think just again to go back to how, um, th how this work hasn't become central yet, I, um, probably one um, uh, popular, uh, fairly well-known uh, is, um, is Lakoff, who's done his book on metaphors we live by and just published a new um, book on metaphors and, and um, related them to the last political campaign, trying to show their power and arguing for the need for people to actually do work on producing more metaphors or at least examining um, the, what happens from the ones they use or the consequences of the ones they use. The book was just trounced in the uh, London Times, uh, Times London supplement by Pinker, who, those of you who are psychologists know Pinker to be a Harvard psychologist who's very much a nativist. And, and you know, it's sort of what's all this stuff about, about metaphor and images and representations, you know, sort of downplaying the importance of that in understanding human behavior as if it's sort of fluff um, the content. So it's, it's really, I think, um, what you're asking for and is, is um, really for a huge paradigm shift that we have to have uh, that takes into account the importance of um, representation. I'd like to think it was happening. I think that's the reason we don't have formal education of, of, of journalists. Um, they have no idea that that's what they're doing that when, they're, when they're writing. They're just putting words together in interesting ways. They know that some are more persuasive than others. I'm not, I don't mean to demean them. I just no. think this is just not, um, we're not taught this. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>